brought to you by Penguin. I think this is a mistake that we all make all the time. So we have this kind of weird self-confidence in our ability to decode complicated social situations. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Penguin podcast, the place where our talented guests choose a handful of objects that have inspired their work. I'm Sue Perkins and you are joining me from my home studio which is a rather grandiose term for what is essentially a box room, a mic and some rudimentary soundproofing in the form of a blanket that I've slung over my head. So do forgive any glitches in sound as we record remotely and any noises off, which will inevitably be my rescue Staffordshire Bull Terrier whining for her tea. My guest today is a Canadian journalist whose first five books, including Blink and Outliers, were on the New York Times bestseller list. He's been included on the Time 100 Most Influential People list and is co-founder of the Pushkin Company, whose productions include the Revisionist History podcast. His latest book, Talking to Strangers, is an exploration of human behaviour that challenges how we see and how we judge people. And he's about to find out I've not done my one or even 10,000 hours of podcasting. Today, he's talking to me down the line from New York. It's Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm, hello and welcome. Thank you. Delighted to be on the podcast. Now, you've chosen some objects which have inspired your work. And I see you've chosen a bottle of vodka, which I'm very down with, and a theme from Friends. Now, we're going to discover what those are in uh, a moment. But first, let's talk about the book in general, it, it highlights, which I thoroughly enjoyed, by the way, it highlights the disconnect and how we approach and, and treat strangers and seems incredibly prescient given current and terrible news events uh, with George Floyd. Did you have any notion that this book would be so on the money? You don't have to be clairvoyant to know that this is a problem that's been going on in America for many, many, many years and it was going to happen again. I chose to focus on Sandra Bland, but I was well aware, which is, I suppose, it's a particularly infamous example of an an encounter between an African-American and a police officer that went awry, but I I could have chosen a hundred. For people not familiar with the case, Sandra was imprisoned by that police officer um, for what was essentially a minor car violation. But the conversation between them escalated to the point where he felt he had to take her from the car. And and tragically, uh, after she was incarcerated, she she committed suicide. So you have this, uh, uh, as you say, a, a, a moment with a stranger, two very d- different people with different types of context and baggage who can't break out of that sufficiently to create a more positive interaction, which would have ultimately led to Sandra still being alive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the central misunderstanding is the police officer observes her distress and takes it as evidence of something sinister. I I talk at length in the book about all the ways in which we Mm. misread strangers. This is a really significant one. If I am um, upset, it can look to an outside observer, like I have some kind of malicious motive, like, you know, the the outward manifestations of two profoundly different emotional states um, have a have a quite a large overlap. I spent a lot of time later in the book elaborating on this fact mm. that we're so blind to the extent to which the conclusions we draw from strangers are prone to error. The police officer never stopped to wonder, I'm observing her, she's clearly agitated. 
Maybe she's not agitated because she wishes me ill. Maybe she's agitated because she's just really unhappy about being stopped over the most for the most trivial of reasons by a police officer, right? I mean, he never examines his conclusion. And I don't mean to beat up on the guy because I think this is a mistake that we all make all the time. Is that we have this kind of weird self-confidence in our ability to decode complicated social situations. This leads us on to your first object, which is a track by Janelle Monet, uh, Hell You Tom About. Can you tell mm-hmm. us more about this track? I really thought of this book from the moment I started writing it as an audiobook for which I was going to do a print version. Mm. I made sure I got tape of all my interviews and you hear that per- the person I'm interviewing. And when I talk about Neville Chamberlain, you hear actual tape of Neville Chamberlain in 1939. So I was always thinking about how it would sound, which I thought was really important because it's a very emotional book. You think with your eyes and you feel with your ears is what we always say in, mm. um, at Pushkin, my podcast company. And so I was, from the beginning, was constantly thinking about, I would like to have some music to accompany this story. And I was about to name drop. Is that okay? Yeah. De rigueur, I'd say, of a man in your position. (laughs) I was at a dinner party with David Byrne, Mm -hmm. and he had covered this song by Janelle Monae, uh, How Am You Talking About?, which is this protest song. He's incredibly interested in protest songs. And he had done a version of this protest song that she wrote about this string of encounters between people who, African-Americans who had died at the hands of police officers. The chorus is where she calls out the names of all the people who died and says, say your name. You know, so Michael Brown, say your name. Eric Garner, say your name. Sandra Bland, say your name. The effect of this kind of um, calling out the names of these people who had died is unbelievably powerful and emotional. If I'm not mistaken, it had not been released. She had simply done a kind of demo David Byrne heard it and had played it at his concert. So I called up. As it happened, I'd met Janelle Monet's manager years before, if you don't mind the digression. <laughs> I had had dinner once, like five years ago, with Janelle Monet and these two guys who are her, who work with her, write her songs, do her music with her. And I've never had this happen before. Throughout the dinner, a steady stream of people came up, basically just because they wanted to be in her presence. Mm. It was amazing. They didn't want autographs. They didn't want pictures. They just wanted to kind of like bask in the glow of her reflected glory and charisma. So I said, can I use the song? And they said, of course. And I think it's one of the things that makes the audiobook so powerful. It's nothing to do with me. It's, it just has the effect of turning that audiobook into something magical and powerful. It is an incredible song and it completely relates to the subject matter of your book, which is that it's important to speak of individuals. It's important to say their names. It's important to remember what they experienced and what they suffered. But also it's important to listen to the number of names and realise the sheer volume means there is a systemic problem in society. This is a consequence of a systematic approach, deliberate approach taken by law enforcement in the United States that leads to these cases. Mm. I very much wanted to take, start with the personal and then move to this broader institutional plane. The first thing that you talk about is our default to truth mechanism. And you mentioned Chamberlain, that's one of the most sort of profound examples in modern history, is that he believes Hitler. He believes Mm -hmm. Hitler because he wants to believe Hitler, but also out of some, I suspect, innate 
feeling of superiority. You know, he talks about Hitler as being sort of badly dressed and a bit shambolic and late. And that plays into his narrative of sort of English colonialism and and how mm-hmm. how this this shrinking little man couldn't possibly have any malevolent kind of feelings towards Europe. You know, someone who's sort of almost professionally cynical. The the idea that actually we're driven to believe people was curious and and yet profound. The returns to being innately trusting are enormous, and the costs are relatively small. But that doesn't mean the costs are zero. No. Every now and again, you run into a situation where your your willingness uh, to trust someone else, your innate desire to trust someone else, gets you in trouble. Britain is a classic example of a high trust society, and that's why it works. So mm. a man who comes from that world, where he's probably never encountered someone who is as malevolently sociopathic as Hitler. You know, someone like Churchill, what, what saves Churchill is Churchill has an extraordinary imagination. And his imagination allows him room to conjure up a, a beast that he's never encountered before. Mm. But then there's that strange paradox, which I was interested in, which is that uh, Churchill proves a better judge of character uh, of Hitler having not met him than Chamberlain, who has. So this 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 idea that you can understand a stranger better by meeting them is not always true. In the case of Chamberlain, it just it, the more he met him, the more the, the wool was pulled over his eyes. But particularly when the stranger's written a 700-page <laughs> <Yeah>. manifesto. <laughs> the clues were there, Malcolm. <laughs> so Churchill's read Mein Kampf. Yeah. I don't know for certain. I'm willing to bet Neville Chamberlain had not read Mein Kampf. Um, you sort of so hope not, you, you could, because otherwise it makes him look even worse. Yes, yeah, otherwise it makes him look even worse. But, you know, so people, the evidence that people commit to the page, um, to hundreds of pages, is probably more useful than whether they have a firm handshake and look you in the eye. Mm. Don't even get me started on my problems with job interviews, which I think are the oh. most ludicrous ritual of modern life. Um, I'm really supposed to know whether someone can work with me because I sit down with them and chat with them for 25 minutes. And you're right, judging people on a handshake, which is this sort of very sort of stale, old patrician idea of of what what a, what a man or indeed a woman uh, is, you know, it's very yeah. strange. Yeah. Tell me about the next object, which um, you, you've said is the Friends theme tune, which I was, uh, if I hadn't read the book, I would be very surprised to hear that that was something you'd you'd push to have. Yeah, I was interested in this idea. One of the ideas that runs in the book is the difficulty we have in making sense of what other people are feeling. And one of the reasons we have such difficulty in decoding other people's emotions is we have an operating assumption that emotion is represented in facial expression and body language. If you're unhappy, you look unhappy. If you're distressed, you look distressed. If you're angry, you look angry. And one of the reasons we believe in this incredibly simplistic and um, deeply flawed assumption is because television shows teach us to think that. Mm. So I did this fun thing where I took an episode of Friends and I had an expert in facial expression analyze the expressions of all the characters in a key scene and then see if, is it true in Friends that when Joey is unhappy, he looks unhappy and you know, when uh, Phoebe is agitated, she looks agitated. And when Rachel is delighted, she looks delighted. And the answer is yes, 100%. There is never a case in Friends where (laughs) the emotion that is felt on the inside 
is not represented perfectly on the outside. That's because Friends is a show that is acted by professional actors who have been trained to represent their emotions faithfully on their faces. And it's also why this fun thing about Friends, which I explore, is you can follow an episode of Friends even if the sound's off. Mm. (laughs) Totally can tell what's happening because they're telling you what's happening on their faces, right? The emotional arc of the shows is perfectly transparent even if you don't speak English. Now, the point and reason I have that chapter is that in real life, we don't do that, not even remotely. But if you spend a lot of time watching television, you can easily come to believe that that's the way the world works. So that's why I chose the Friends theme song. There's a great expression you use, that the, the face is a, a billboard for the heart. And that's what we grow up thinking, that, as you say, that, oh, it's, you know, it was jaw dropping or, you know, her eyes widened in, in shock. We have all these sort of cliches that describe in inverted commas, normative response to its sort of emotional states. But actually yes. real life isn't remotely like friends. And the the example that you use, which was incredibly interesting and explained an awful lot, was Amanda Knox. Uh, we, we all judged her based on what we perceived to be a strange reaction to grief. Yes. And just yes. because she's mismatched and doesn't necessarily do the jaw drop or the eyes widening or the shaking, just because she doesn't do that, it doesn't mean that she was guilty. Yeah, she's a, I have a whole chapter on her because she's such a kind of heartbreaking example of the consequences of this naive faith we have that we can tell what someone's thinking and feeling just by observing their behavior. She's she's just a little bit weird. Mm. And she manifested her distress over the murder of her roommate in a way that was a little bit unexpected. And in a way in particular that the Italian police and the British tabloid media found odd. And they ran with that fact. And poor poor woman spent years in an Italian jail for a crime she had nothing to do with. As well as being sort of sexualized and having her past oh dug God. up uh, yeah. along the way. Because, you know, there's this prurient interest in, in female murderers, as they suspected she was. But as you say, um, your eyes are not objective evidence. Exactly. I mean, you talk about the Pan Am smile, um, which is part of the um, facial action coding system that you, you describe. That presumably is becoming something more of a, a, a regular occurrence. That, I, I, the, the fake smile is what I mean. You're using, mm-hmm. using the, the bottom half of, of your face to just turn your mouth upwards, but the rest of your face isn't exhibiting anything that resembles fun. I could have written a whole chapter on the Pan Am smile. The opposite of the Pan Am smile is called the Duchenne smile. The Duchenne smile is the real smile, the smile of genuine happiness. Mm. The Pan Am smile, which resembles it in many ways, you still, you're still showing your teeth and lifting up the corners of your mouth, but you're, it's a fake. The one kind of person who's very good at discerning the difference between those two smiles are, um, are infants. Mm. Infants will respond to a Duchenne smile, a real smile, and not respond to a Pan Am smile, which is kind of fascinating, isn't it? Um, oh, yeah, it's, they will it's only a respond pre-language. To they get it. Genu- yeah, to genuine emotion. But it makes sense, of course, because there's only one form of information the baby could process, right? They're, they're not understanding language. They don't, of course, they have to focus on that. They got no other option. The rest of us are so, we're overwhelmed with information. So we don't have the time to do those kinds of find the grained analyses of people's faces. When you write a book, do you feel that 
you are changed as you come out the other end? Is there, is, it, does it become transformative for you as well as your readers? Uh, it does, yeah. It can only, I mean, you're living with a set of ideas for years on end. And inevitably, when you're writing a book, you challenge some of your own ideas. It's sort of what draws, what, in my case anyway, what draws me to investigate subjects is that they conflict with my pre-existing positions. So I find that kind of irresistible. I think I've been changed dramatically by every one of my books in some way. They've always led me in unexpected directions. I've never ended up with the book that I set out to write. What did you start out writing with Talking to Strangers? What was the inciting idea? Well, I hadn't thought of it in the beginning as a book about the encounter between Sandra Bland and the police officer. In other words, I hadn't thought about it as a book that was kind of plugging into the great racial pathologies of American life. There's all these spy stories in the book. Mm. That's where I began. And I was thinking very narrowly about this question of why is it that spies get away with spying for as long as they do? There is almost zero moral gravity to spy stories, part of why they're so much fun. But then the book took this turn and I realized, oh, actually, I do want to explore something that has real emotional and moral weight. That happened you know, relatively late in the process. You talk about things that have emotional weight. Uh, this brings us on to your, your next object, which is the bottle of vodka. Well, I have a chapter about a very infamous uh, sexual assault case in America. It happened at Stanford University uh, a couple of years ago involving a young man who is very drunk and encounters a very, very drunk young woman at a party. Or he says he thought that they were engaged in consensual sexual activity and she woke up the next morning and said, no, you know, it was a case that prompted marches and headlines, all kinds. It was a very big deal here. And I chose to retell the story of that case through the prism of alcohol. Mm. I felt that people were talking about it and were discounting the extraordinarily disruptive role that drunkenness plays in our ability to make sense of another's intentions. We have become way, way, way too cavalier about how extraordinarily powerful and disruptive alcohol is, Mm. particularly to young people and their sexual encounters. When you look at sexual assault cases, I defy you to find a problematic sexual assault case that does not involve alcohol. Uh, It doesn't happen, right? Yeah. And we cannot hope to deal with the epidemic of sexual assault unless we start to have some very serious conversations about the role that alcohol has come to play in youth culture um, in the West. Alcohol is often dismissed as obviously a socially acceptable. Your view on that is it's, it's much more fundamental than that. It doesn't just bring out elements. It changes your fundamental yeah. understanding of yourself. We have this benign view, to go to your point, what alcohol is simply giving us, is creating, is a kind of distilled version of ourselves that it simply strips away, you know, layers of the onion. There is just no evidence to support that notion. Alcohol does not bring out some essential version of yourself. It turns you into someone completely different. It's not the same for you and me either. You know, in your case, it may turn you into someone who is, I don't know, warm and delightful and funnier. And in my case, it may turn me into a mean, sociopathic jerk. In someone else's case, it may just put them to sleep, particularly teens who have limited experience with this powerful drug. Understand how much they are putting themselves at peril 
by engaging in this act of kind of unconscious transformation. You, you say that you didn't mean to start with the story of Sandra and that came came later. How do you begin to research the material? Does Do you have a sort of scattergun approach and a sort of magpie mind and you're drawn to whatever seems interesting and you pursue that lead? I began with a very specific question was, every single study that has ever been done on lie detection has the same conclusion, which is human beings are really bad at detecting lies. Mm. Doesn't make any sense. You'd think we would be good at that. You'd think it'd be an evolutionary tool, wouldn't you, that we'd, we'd, we'd have gained. Exactly. And the opposite is true. We're barely better than chance. And people whose job it is to detect lies are really no better than anyone else. Um, in some cases, they're worse. That was the, the little fact I began with. And it sort of grew from there. There's a, a, a very interesting um, study that you recall in the book where judges are meeting defendants, looking, looking at them and deciding whether they are fit to be released on bail or whether they should remain detained. And an AI programme managed to predict more accurately than the judge who was doing face-to-face interactions whether or not these people would reoffend. Yeah. People rightly point out that... Artificial intelligence comes with all manner of embedded biases and has all kinds of problems. What they fail to point out is that the the other option, which is having humans do it, is even worse. You don't need to convince me that AI is not perfect. AI has got a whole bunch of problems. But when you look carefully at the data about human decision makers in that context, oh my God, it's terrifying. They're just awful. Well, we're brimful, aren't we, of prejudice, whether we like it or not. Oh my God, yeah. Like I just find it so... It's so 2020, that people will get all worked up about the embedded biases in computer-assisted decision-making and forget that the only reason we went after computer-assisted decision-making was that human decision-making was so god-awful. But again, that that speaks to your point that the more you interact with people, sometimes the the, the poorer your decision-making about what kind of person they are becomes. Yes. We talked, well, you mentioned that the spies, that the, the rubbish spies, or rather the good spies that have fooled other rubbish spies. And that leads us on to your final object, which is mountain climbing equipment, which uh, relates to a certain character in your book. My favourite story in the book about a, <laughs> the story of a Cuban defector. He was aware of the CIA's activities in Cuba and he comes, he defects and he says, you know what, you thought you ran all these spies And in fact, they were all working for us the entire time. The whole CIA operation in Cuba was owned and operated by Fidel Castro. And what's hilarious about the story is that one of the chief CIA operatives who was deceived by all of these spies was a guy who's had a nickname, given a nickname by the Cubans, El Alpinista, the mountain climber. He was a guy who was a mountain climber and he was this legendary CIA operative. He was the best of the best. And even he was fooled not once, not twice, but almost, I think, every single one of the spies he was running when he was CIA station chief in Havana was a double agent working for Fidel Castro. So the point of that story is that even those of us who are genuinely good at what we do are capable of being deceived by strangers. This notion we have that only the gullible and naive are taken in by the stranger. And when when there is some high-profile case of someone who gets taken in by a stranger, we often blame them. We say you were negligent, right? Mm. We, we put people in jail for being fooled by strangers. But the point of that chapter is even El Alpinista, one of the most legendary operatives in the CIA in, of his generation, even he was fooled. 
And if he's fooled, what possible hope do the rest of us have um, to be good at making sense of strangers? And also there's the, the example that you give of Montes, the, the, the co-worker who was very high up uh, in American intelligence. And when she's actually questioned by one of her, I, I presume it's a sort of in, a semi-interrogation scenario, when she's questioned by one of her co-workers and he says, we think you might be working for the Cubans, she goes through all the obvious signs of being guilty. And yet still, they they pass it off, <laughs> you know, yeah. as, as something well, other than what it is. I mean, I'm someone who's read every book imaginable on, you know, the Cambridge spies and mm. um, all of the espionage and deceit in um, mid-century um, England, it's the same story, right? And it's the story of what the British did to the Germans during the Second World War, pulled the wool over their eyes over and over and over and over again. It is the quintessential human story. We're not good at this. No. We really aren't. Well, I suppose it's the myth of exceptionalism, isn't it? The idea that I'm better than you and, and I can move your levers about with remaining untouchable by myself. Um, yeah. how, how long did you spend tracking the mountain climber down? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> it's not as simple months. as looking up El Alpinista in the phone book, is it? Someone, I, I knew a guy in the CIA who knew him, but wouldn't give me his name. And so all I knew was that there was a legendary CIA operative who had been Havana station chief. That's all I had. So I spent months, made many, many phone calls. And then one day out of the blue, I got a call from like an unmarked number on my phone. And it's, that was him. And uh, yeah, it was really, uh, I really enjoyed talking to him. See, I imagine you get a lot of those calls. I imagine you're the sort of person that will be sitting at your desk one day and there'll be, there'll be numerous sort of unlisted phone calls coming in from all around the world, people finally ready to tell their story. I wish that were the case. It's always the other direction. It's me doing the chasing and other people doing the running away. How does he view that period? Because it's the most sort of shocking dereliction of, <laughs> of kind of national service really to be so conned so often. How, how does he reflect on that? I think correctly, he reflects on it by saying espionage is hard. People who work in espionage are the least surprised by how hard it is to find spies. It's only the it's only those of us on the outside who think these guys are incompetent. I can't believe this, right? That's what we say. But when you talk to someone who's in that world, they're like, "Well, it happens all the time. We're not the first people to be deceived, and we won't be the last." You answered a question that I, that was forming in my mind at the perfect point in the book, which is, "Hang on, if all these suppose—I use the word gullible—that's not what I mean—but people who default to truth, why can't we replace them with those who?" are sceptics. But of course, as you rightly say, it would be a terrible world if we allowed people like that to exclusively run the show. There was a very senior British intelligence officer in the 1960s who became convinced that Harold Wilson was a Soviet spy. And oh, I've heard he, this theory, yes. Yes. I mean, he rampaged through the upper reaches of the British intelligence service, trying to find proof of this. This was someone who trusted no one who was just paranoid. <laughs> yeah. And he, you know, did enormous damage. I mean, at one point, there was, a, there was this clandestine plan to, to have a military coup to overthrow the Wilson government. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure I'm getting some aspect of this wrong, but this is all in the Vegas. This is a crazy stuff. People who are deeply suspicious by nature are the last people you want anywhere near a position of authority. They're the toxic. The holy fool, as you call them, 
chaotic levels of paranoia if the system itself is run by them. Um, we'll go to the start of your book, if we may, where we meet uh, Florentino Aspiaga, uh, the high-ranking officer and Cuba's general directorate of intelligence. So we're going to listen to an extract of the audiobook now. Aspiaga wanted his betrayal to sting. He met up with his girlfriend Marta in a park in downtown Bratislava. It was Saturday afternoon. She was Cuban as well, one of thousands of Cubans who were guest workers in Czech factories. Like all Cubans in her position, her passport was held at the Cuban government offices in Prague. Aspiaga would have to smuggle her across the border. He had a government-issued Mazda. He removed the spare tire from the trunk, drilled an air hole in the floor, and told her to climb inside. Eastern Europe at that point was still walled off from the rest of the continent. Travel between East and West was heavily restricted. But Bratislava was only a short drive from Vienna, and Aspiaga had made the trip before. He was well known at the border and carried a diplomatic passport. The guards waved him through. In Vienna, he and Marta abandoned the Mazda, hailed a taxi, and presented themselves at the gates to the United States Embassy. It was Saturday evening. The senior staff was all at home. But Aspiaga did not need to do much to get the guard's attention. I am a case officer from Cuban intelligence. I am an intelligence commandante. Well, that was Talking to Strangers, written and read by my guest, Malcolm Gladwell. And whilst we're here, do remember to rate, comment and subscribe to the Penguin podcast and let us know what you think. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. Uh, This audiobook, of course, is more like enhanced reading with archive clips and interviews with people that Malcolm features and makes for, I have to say, an incredibly compelling read. And listen, um, before we go, Malcolm, I have one further question. What's next? What's next for your beloved readers? What are you working on? I'm just uh, finishing up season five of Revisionist History, my podcast, recording the episodes that launches June 18th. And is the next book crystallising or forming in your mind? No, no, no. It's going to be some years. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> way too way too soon well I look forward to it whenever it comes thank you so much for talking to me Malcolm thank you often overlooked in the workplace the language we use has the power to halt creativity and exacerbate stress but using the right words can motivate and empower increase productivity and take you to the next level as a leader and manager the right balance of doing and thinking keeps an organization adaptive and agile innovative and entrepreneurial. It gives the people in the organization a sense of purpose and progress, which helps drive continuous improvement. In short, the right balance of doing and thinking drives learning. It keeps the company relevant and solvent. It keeps employees happy. It leads to happy customers too. Essential reading for anyone who wishes to lead. The audiobook edition of Leadership is Language is available to download now.